1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater,
2: and this is your wake-up call.
4: The Frankies laid Mike to rest, but not their questions about his murder. Here's Pat.
5: From here to Santa Fe, the state had him in a closed casket, but they had him at the Supreme Court building for a day, and then they had a fabulous service at the cathedral and an internment at the National Cemetery in Santa Fe. There was quite a ceremony, quite a funeral. They filled up the cathedral, and it was beautifully done. It's in a pretty place. I go down there a couple of times a year, and I put sunflowers on his grave because he's a Kansas boy. And I also have a beer with him. I've got a lot of pictures of me drinking Budweiser's at the Santa Fe uh, National Cemetery. And I've had a few over here in front of the dome building.
4: After the funeral, Kevin returned to Florida. But the official investigation seemed to be going nowhere, and Kevin began to bristle at the lack of progress.
6: It had been so many months, Mike was dead. We knew that. But there were so many rumors swirling around. The world is full of kooks and cranks, and Pat and I were were very vocal because of the resistance, because of the kickback and the struggle just to get the autopsy report, but to get any kind of answers to find out what was going on. Anytime I question, who is this person, who is that, why do you need to know that? And it was just this constant bullshit. What are, who are you? You're just his brother. We'll tell you who killed him soon enough, don't worry.
4: And that's how and why Bill got hooked up with the Frankie brothers. Here's Pat.
5: He was writing all these great columns, huh? I just wanted to talk to him. There are so many different people involved in this thing, it hurts your brain after a while. But they're all interconnected, because this, it's an incestuous bunch of criminals down here. Turns out, there's an incestuous bunch of politicians, (laughs) political officials and such, too. And I think a lot of them had stuff that they needed to get cleaned up and covered up.
7: Pat seemed to be the one who was speaking for the family. So I got in touch with him. He started talking about discrepancies of the case. So I said, Pat, come on, uh, tell me more. And he said, the guy you need to talk to about that's my brother Kevin, he's the one who's up on that. So we started talking. The first conversations were, you could see he was very wary. It must have been, oh, three, four months into the investigation after the murder. They weren't being straight with him. I think that's the main thing. There were other things involved. They're trying to get the autopsy. But he wasn't getting information from them. They just kept sort of shining him on, saying, trust us. Don't interfere with the investigation. And more or less, he just said, screw it and uh, told me I could go ahead and write about the organized criminal element.
4: I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. Kevin's back in Florida feeling beyond frustrated when a friend stopped by. He was with the local sheriff's department and brought along a depressing update.
6: A friend of mine in the Charlotte County Sheriff's Department, he said, man, they're going nowhere with the deal. He says, we're not getting it. He said they put a query up there and they said there was nothing to offer other agencies that it's all being handled in-house.
4: Then he gave Kevin a newspaper article mentioning a woman he thought could help solve Mike's murder, along with her business card.
6: He gave me this gal's number. Her name was Jane Doe. That's what it said on the card. He said, you need to go talk to this gal. She helped us with a uh, missing persons case. And man, she was spot on. Found the guy. I said, "How, how did she find it? He said, she's a psychic. And I said, you know, I don't need this shit.
4: But while he was skeptical, he was also desperate. And Kevin decided he had little to
6: lose. I called her up and I said, do you do criminal investigations? And she said, what's your name? And I said, it's Kevin. She said, "Okay, um, what's this about? And I said, it's about a murder. was very quiet for a few seconds, and she said, one of your brothers. And I said, yeah. Knock on the door, and she's in a moo-moo, and a very colorful, lively lady. She said, you mentioned something about your brother being murdered.
4: Regardless of what you believe or think about psychics, Kevin has kept detailed notes of what you're about to hear and many parts have proven pertinent over the years.
6: She said, what time was he killed? And she, I said, they're saying somewhere around seven o'clock. And her notes, she's got 7705 written down, and then 8, 830 says there's something wrong with these times. I don't know if this is the proper time that he was killed, but something happened at seven o'clock. And then something happened again later. Uh, one person inside two or three people outside and it was a planned hit they knew your brother's schedule they knew he was going to be at this meeting there were people that he trusted that he shouldn't have trusted and those very people were having a meeting and you wouldn't believe this but they're meeting right now
4: she then went into very specific detail about a place Kevin would eventually visit much later
6: It's a big house overlooking a lake, and it's got gates on the front and some kind of security system looking down on it like cameras or something. And they're meeting right now talking about this, the the ones that were responsible for it. And I see a rose. I don't know what it means.
4: And then she said something that caught Kevin absolutely off guard.
6: They've got somebody in custody right now. They think that he might have done it, but he didn't do it, but he knows more than he should know. His name's John K-something.
4: As soon as Kevin left, he called the state police officer investigating the murder, Lauren Glover.
6: I asked him, I said, do you have somebody in custody right now? He said, yeah, who, who snitched yet? We got a leak in there. Who told you about that? And I said, uh, I went to a psychic, and she said that he had somebody in custody right now named John K. He says, it's C. Kraus. he says, did she tell you he did it? <laughs> and I said, no. She said he probably didn't do it, but he had some information about it.
4: Krause wouldn't just prove a central figure in Mike's murder, but a tragic one as well. Here's Phil.
7: From an early age, he'd been beaten by his father. I mean, they would punish him when he was 12 years old, tie him to a chair and beat him till he was blue. Uh, it's in, in the records someplace. And so, of course, he started stealing cars at an early age. Johnny Krauss did. And uh, he, he was a notably disturbed kid, I mean, he, he was barely average intelligence, if, if that, and, and terribly disturbed uh, besides.
4: Krauss also knew disturbingly specific and classified details about Michael Frankie's murder.
7: One of the most obvious things that Johnny Krauss knew that he couldn't have known unless he'd been there was the nature of Frankie's wounds. One stab mark to the left arm, probably a defensive wound, and the fatal wound to the heart. It hadn't been released to the public, and Johnny Krause knew that. In addition to that, he said uh, Frankie had come up on him when he was breaking into the car. He tried to get away. He couldn't. Frankie was too strong. They struggled. He had a knife. He started slashing at him, and then he stabbed him, and he turned and ran towards the old hospital, across the huge green lawn there and around the green generator which is exactly what Hunsaker, the the janitor, the state cops, first witness, said he saw that night.
4: Hunsaker was that maintenance worker at the dome building who initially was the only eyewitness to come forward. Back to Kevin.
6: He said he turned because he heard something like a grunt sound or a hurt sound like somebody getting punched in the gut. And he turned around and he saw two guys facing each other. At that instant, one turned and ran this way, And the other one went back into the dome building.
4: But Krauss wasn't even on anyone's radar for the murder, or brought in because of
6: it. He got arrested for a parole violation, I believe.
7: The morning after the murder, when this hit the news, he told some of his cohorts who was living in a flophouse there that he really stepped in it and he had to get out of town. He confessed to his mother. He confessed to his girlfriend. And he confessed to his brother. He went in and told his parole officers that he'd seen the murder but what he said and of course he later said it we just made it up which he did was that he'd seen five Mexicans commit the murder and then he chased them he said for <laughs> for about uh, two or three miles before they got away and then he dropped out of sight again and that and then and was rearrested a couple months later in Central Oregon and brought back and questioned again and that's when that's when he confessed
4: to Martinac Randy Martinek was an investigator for the Oregon Justice Department. Here's Kevin.
6: He was an investigator that was assisting with the investigation, and that's where Martinak got the confession. He brought in a polygrapher who was with the FBI, flew him in, and did the polygraph instead of having the state police do the polygraph because he knew they were shipped.
4: And he passed the polygraph.
6: And he passed the, the polygraph. Here's Phil. This was after he confessed. The FBI polygrapher
7: concluded that Krause was telling the truth.
4: Tom McCallum was the private investigator who'd ultimately work for the defense of another man, the one arrested for Mike's murder. Here's his take on Krause. The um,
7: Department of Justice guy that talked to him was kind of a neutral, I always thought, investigator. He wasn't with the DA's office. He wasn't with the state police. And they were all, you know, going in other directions. So I kind of weighed that into my opinion of what he had to say, and he totally believed that Krausser did it. And some of the things that he said were things that uh, nobody would have known—physical things—and the way that he described what he did were pretty right on. I mean, I had read the police reports, and I read his stuff, so I knew nobody knew some of those details. So it seemed pretty interesting, and um, certainly warranted us going and talking to him.
4: So your feeling was that Krauss knew things he couldn't have known unless he had been at the
2: scene of the murder? That's the way it read to me.
0: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.
4: He even took the cops on a ride to show them where they could find the bloody clothes he ditched after the murder. During that ride, he also suggested a bit of a detour.
7: The police took him in a police car to show them where he had buried some clothes that he had worn that night. And as they were driving down a street, Park Avenue, I think it's called, uh, two blocks from the Dome building, which is where Michael Frankie worked,
6: Krause said, if you want to go see where the knife was that killed Mike Frankie, go over to 942 Park Avenue. Krause was headed to Buck Burgess's.
4: Only for some reason, the cops didn't go.
6: And that's what Dale Penn in the car...
4: Dale Penn was the then DA overseeing the investigation.
6: And two state cops and Steve Gorham, Kraus's attorney... And they couldn't take two minutes out of their drive to the penitentiary to stop by 942 Park Avenue just to check him out. <laughs> we had a an engagement or something. You really want to go over there, Johnny? <laughs> no, I was kidding. Can't you take a joke?
4: <laughs> You'll soon understand the indignation behind the Frankie brothers' laughter. But first, here's Phil's take on the man who lived at that address... Buck Burgess.
7: What's important about Buck Burgess is that he is a completely uh, dissolute criminal. His first charge in California back when he was in his 20s was for the murder of a one-year-old child. He eventually got off with manslaughter. He'd done time for burglary, for assault. Uh, He's a pedophile. Uh, Most recently, he served time in Colorado for uh, uh, sexually assaulting a young girl. He's a very dangerous guy. He was out on parole, just like Johnny Krauss was out on parole, and he was living two blocks from the dome building. It's worth noting that when Johnny Krause started getting beyond the simple story that he stabbed Frankie when Frankie caught him burglarizing his car, he started bringing in Buck Burgess's name. And Johnny Krauss used to hang out with Buck Burgess. He was he was A real fringe character, even in the underworld. He would hang out in the bushes around Buck's house.
4: And who was Buck living with at the time?
7: A woman named Elaine Young, who uh, Kevin eventually talked to when he came out to investigate on his own.
4: This wasn't the first time Buck Burgess's name had come up in the investigation. And it won't be the last.
6: The morning, January 18th, and they were doing a circumferential, concentric search where they were going out in bigger and bigger circles looking for any kind of evidence, they came across Elaine Young's van uh, with Buck Burgess at the wheel and questioned him what he was doing there, took his name and all that information. And he said that he did some kids breaking into his house and he was trying to see if he could catch them.
4: But Kevin believes Burgess was more concerned about being caught.
6: My contention is that the shit didn't go down the way it was supposed to and he was waiting for the cops to come to his house here in case Johnny Krause started yapping.
4: On our trip to the dome building, we drove to Buck Burgess's then house to get an idea of its proximity to the location of Mike's murder.
6: 942 Park Avenue, the tan building with the red trim right there. So Buck is here, and you can see his house directly straight through there. So he's sitting here watching his own house. And then when he pulled off, the police came back through here. The state police that were doing the search, I think they were assisted by Salem cops, found a knife with blood on it there. And it was almost like an in-your-face type deal. And they figured that he left it, but they couldn't prove it. Did the blood? It came back to, I think, it was animal blood. But in the discovery, when they're taking Krauss out to where Krauss says that he buried the clothing he wore, Dale Penn's in the car, Steve Gorham, Krauss's attorney, Kennecott, chief of security for Department of Corrections, and he had a guy named Stubblefield that was his assistant. Mike fired Stubblefield, and he was rehired after Mike got killed. In Buck's personal belongings, he had the, the little contact list. Bob Kennicott's home phone number was in that goddamn thing.
4: When did that come out?
6: It didn't come out because I finally got to Elaine after the trial and everything else, and after Buck had left and absconded, he left that behind, and he's got Bob Kennicott's home phone number in there, chief of security. And Kennicott is in that car with Gorm, Dale Penn, state police driver. Why he was in there is he's got his ears on to tell McAllister what's going on.
4: Remember Scott McAllister? That was the assistant AG. Mike was having trouble getting removed.
6: And Krause says, if you want to go by the murderer's house, it's at 942 Park Avenue. So that is Buck Burgess's house. And that's where Johnny Krause would go quite often. Elaine Young used to come home from work. She worked up at one of the sawmills and she'd come home from work and Johnny Krause would be hiding in the bushes there waiting for Buck to get in. And he'd never talk to her because she wasn't part of the group, but he'd just hide in the bushes and she'd go into the house, say, hi, Johnny. And he wouldn't say anything. It was that kind of weird shit.
4: Pat Frankie visited Krause in prison, hoping to leave with answers about Mike's murder.
6: I went
5: to the penitentiary with Krause's lawyer, and I had a series of questions written out on the 3x5 cards that I showed Krause through the glass. I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to record it recorded. what I was asking and what he was responding to. And I asked him about 8 or 10 questions, and he indicated that he didn't do it, but he knew who did do it, and that he'd be willing to cooperate along
4: those lines. Pat called Phil with a bombshell Krauss shared.
5: He
7: said, uh, Pat, this goes beyond, uh, this goes to corrections. You're on to something. Pat told me I put that in the column.
4: It was after Phil printed that allegation that the infamous car ride with Johnny Krause took place.
7: Within the week, Dale Penn and a couple of cops took Johnny Krause out on an excursion. He said he would show them where he buried his clothes that night. And as they passed the house at 942 Park Avenue, this was, you know, just two blocks away from the dome building, he pointed at the house and said, if you want to know who did it or where the knife is, it's over there. He's pointing at Buck Burgess's house. And we have the transcript of this.
4: This is what Pat and Kevin were ridiculing earlier the man who claims to know who killed the head of corrections offers to take the police to the location of the murder weapon. And they pass?
7: And that afternoon, the the record shows he came back and had a meeting with Dale Penn and Sarah Moore, who was then the lead prosecutor on the case, and said that he'd been approached by officials in corrections, offered $10,000 to kill Frankie, but had backed out of it and that someone else had done it. So all this is going on behind the scenes, and we don't know it until the records are released sometime later.
4: After Phil wrote an article alleging the corruption Krauss had intimated to Pat and confesses as much in greater detail to the investigators, something incredible happens. Krauss recants his confession and is dropped as a suspect out of nowhere.
5: It was on the news, you know, that he had, he had recanted, and they, they had given him another polygraph, and he passed, saying he didn't do it.
4: <laughs> and Krauss seems to have had incentive.
7: Shortly after that, Johnny Krauss was eventually given immunity by the DA's office on the condition that he not recant his recantation.
4: So it's not just that they didn't like his confession. They didn't like the people his confession would ultimately lead to.
7: That's what it looks like, for sure.
0: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.
1: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. It
4: was around this time Kevin and Phil finally met in person. What were your first impressions of one another?
6: As my dad would say, we were kind of sniffing each other's ass.
4: They quickly bonded over the issue that interest in solving Mike's murder seemed to be waning.
6: I expected this uproar and anger, you know, over my brother's murder. Instead of this, just shut the hell up, we'll take care of it, don't worry. Where was the outrage? And that's, uh, I wrote Goldschmidt about that. You know, where is your fucking outrage? Why aren't you backing a a reward fund? You're saying don't put a reward fund on the table. Why? With no response, and Mm -hmm. you asked him that too in the papers. So why don't you do the reward fund? And they never did it.
4: Kevin had been instructed not to talk to the press, but at this point he'd had enough and was sick of following orders.
6: I had to make a commitment and I made the commitment to Phil because he hadn't lied to me and they had. Not just once but repeatedly. And then the the denial of the autopsy report and saying that they couldn't trust us not to leak the information. As if we were at odds with them trying to solve the murder that we're gonna do something to jeopardize it. What idiotic and that's Dale Penn.
7: Well, that's what they accused him of later. Kevin finally went public with what his brother had told him, that he was investigating his department, that he discovered an organized criminal element and was going to clean house. And they accused him of making it up, as if he would make up something to derail uh, the investigation of his brother's case. I mean, they set up a straw man so that they wouldn't have to deal with the basic question, which was, was there corruption and was, was Michael Frankie investigating corruption? Which would have been easy enough to prove if they'd wanted to. The rest of us could find evidence of it. Several people and different papers were following it and it was clear. But they set up a straw man and they attacked Kevin for saying it. And they tried to ruin him. And they did.
6: They thought.
4: But what they didn't anticipate was Kevin would fight back. Through the relentlessness of Phil Stamford, who was continuing to write about the case for the Oregonian, and newspaper reporter Steve Jackson, who was doing the same thing at the Statesman Journal, creating a productive, if somewhat competitive, triangle to solve the case.
6: I was constantly on the phone with either one of them all day, and it was Jackson. I can tell you exactly what's going to come out of his mouth as soon as I get him on the line. Okay, don't tell Stanford, but... And then he tells me something, and I call Phil, and he says, okay, did you talk to Jackson? He says, okay, but don't tell him I talked to you, but what did he say? And I just, okay, well, don't tell him I told you this, but... I said, okay, okay, don't worry about that. But they kept lighting each other's fire.
4: Here's Steve Jackson's take.
2: Phil was a columnist, um, and he did not buy the, the official explanation. At least, you know, he he was questioning some things. And, you know, so I had some respect for Phil early on as somebody who, you know, at least he's not buying the, the party line here and is asking some different questions. I recognized fairly early on that um, Kevin in particular was uh, passing information from me, talking to me, And then talking to Phil, um, because I would see this sort of pop up in Phil's columns a little bit later, and I knew he wasn't down in Salem and looking at some of this stuff. But it evolved to a point of, you know, Phil would call me and ask what was going on in my investigation, and we would talk, and he would ask permission, but... He would run some of what I was doing almost as a sort of a preview of what was going to come out in the Statesman Journal the next day. He would have it in his column up in the Oregonian.
4: Back to Kevin.
2: So it was people that didn't take the Oregonian that
6: were in in the Salem area that would see (laughs) Jackson referring to a recent column by Phil Stanford mentions that there was a drawing of the man in the pinstripe suit that they sat on for six months. Yeah.
4: That sketch, the drawing of the man in the pinstripe suit, which police initially refused to release, would become a huge piece in the puzzle of Mike's murder.
7: they released a couple others that were badly done, and, and it could have been anyone. But there was this other drawing that was circulating, and I called down to Dale Penn, the, the district attorney, and I said, why haven't you released it? He yeah, said, well, uh, because it's just not very good. So, you know, what did I know? Uh, and, but I kept calling and uh, finally got in touch with Binta. And she said, oh, why not? And so she faxed it to me 30 minutes before my deadline too. You know, I, I had an 11.30 deadline for the column and I had the column already written, but and I was gonna have to go without the picture, but I put it there. It was the, this picture of the Hispanic man, well-dressed, well-groomed, mustache, wearing a suit, man in the pinstripe suit is what it became known as. And I finished with the picture at the bottom and I said, who is this man?
4: And Phil would soon find himself a target too, on a very public stage.
7: That's what set off Goldschmidt. And next thing I knew, he was holding a press conference. And uh, a radio reporter called me, I was, I was at my desk and and played me the tape. I, I didn't know it was going to happen. He's saying, issue after issue is in the paper, uh, and nobody has ever stopped to say, where does this garbage come from? This is the, the governor. You're impugning the character of the Oregon State Police, which is an independent investigation. Talk is cheap. And so uh, he held another conference and press conference and called it BS.
4: So suddenly you're being attacked by the governor of Oregon.
7: Yeah. Oh yeah. In a way it was sort of a heady experience. You know, I was writing a column going uh, toe-to-toe with the governor. They, you know, the, the reporter asked me for a comment and I said, I think the governor's getting bad advice. Well, as it turns out, it was at least that. I'm not sure that that's all it was. But in the newsroom, especially with my editors, this had a huge effect because at the time Goldschmidt was the golden boy of Oregon politics.
4: After these articles ran, and Phil began to raise questions about the investigation and what the police were hiding, DA Dale Penn also turned to the press to discredit Kevin.
7: Let's not forget that Dale Penn, at the same time, was going along with his strategy and making statements to the press that he'd never even heard about this organized criminal element until he read about it in the paper, meaning my column. So, um, in other words, they were calling Kevin a liar. And this was the beginning of their strategy, I guess, to paint him as a disturbed, distraught family member who's just gone
6: over the edge and is making things up. I was too foolish to realize that they were trying to make me feel like I was nuts, so I didn't go nuts because I realized that I was telling the truth. Therefore, they couldn't gaslight me. It it was their
7: only chance to discredit you for what you said about what your brother had been doing when he was killed, that he was investigating corruption, they had to attack you because they couldn't attack the evidence on corruption. And so they were lying from the beginning about that. That I never said anything about it to him.
6: Kiss my ass. That's what they kept, com- the governor's office was using that as an excuse too. How dare Kevin Frankie say anything bad about the state police when they're the same people that cleaned this mess up the last time in 86. They didn't clean it up. They just rearranged the furniture.
4: Information Phil and Kevin would eventually uncover would clarify their confusion as to why they were targeted.
7: It's pretty clear now that by making him the issue, diverting attention from the real issue, which was was Michael Frankie investigating corruption, and even more to the point, was there corruption? in the the correction system. That's what they had to avoid at all costs. And that's why they went after Kevin. It's one of the more despicable things I've ever seen. And going after a family member of a victim who is raising questions about his brother's murder.
4: Seriously, it sounds like you guys were turning over stones and you found more than a few snakes.
7: Yeah, and, and a lot of them are still
4: out there. Coming up on Murder in Oregon. The town of Salem is stripped back to reveal rank corruption.
7: When you got a governor of the state of Oregon, it's a goddamn pedophile. Anything's possible.
4: Untethered evil.
5: You had somebody who was desperate enough to take the risk of killing the head of corrections. You must have something really big to hide.
0: And terror. I mean, it was getting really, really scary and really bad. And he said he had killed a man and watched him die.
4: And much of it would seem linked to the mysterious man in the pinstripe suit.
5: Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright-Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright-Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin, with music supervision by Noel Brown. Murder in Oregon is a production of
2: iHeartRadio.